Well, you can open your Bible if you would like to Revelation 20, but you're not going to hear me say this many times as your pastor, but we're not going to use our Bibles that much tonight. And the reason we're not is because we're going to use these charts because we're going to be looking at four different views on Revelation 20. I will read Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 here in just a moment just so we can know what we are talking about. But before we do that, and this is an intro, by the way, to a sermon I'm going to preach in like three weeks, okay? So uh, the way that midweek will, will unfold for the next few weeks is we're in here tonight. Uh, I'm going to go over the four different views of the Millennial Kingdom. Next week, we have a prayer meeting in here. We will not live stream the prayer meeting so that we can pray openly and expectantly uh, about things going on in our church body, and we don't necessarily want all those things on a microphone going out all over the internet uh, during a live stream. So um, next week we will not live stream. We'll have our prayer meeting. On the 18th of October, we have a deacon ordination service in this room. Uh, Ken Durkee, who you all, uh, all the deacons, by the way, that you voted on this past Sunday were uh, were uh, were elected without... Uh, without really hardly any opposition at all, and so almost totally unanimous. And Ken Durkee is not, um, is not ordained as a deacon yet, and so we will do that on the 18th. Uh, Russ Pratt, it's his first time being a deacon in this church. He's been a deacon in a Southern Baptist church before, but first time in this church. So we'll also get to hear his testimony that night of how he came to know the Lord. So it should be a very special night. And then, uh, Lord willing, on October 25th, I will preach... Uh, Revelation 21 through 10, all 10 verses. The Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The five solas of the Protestant Reformation says that the truth is found in Scripture alone. God's word is the only inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. Our salvation is by grace alone from beginning to end and is solely by grace. Our reward in Christ is received by faith alone. The redemption that Christ has accomplished, it's, it's received only by faith. Our hope is in Christ alone. The ungodly are justified in God's sight through Jesus' finished work. That's the only hope for humanity's uh, salvation. It's Christ alone. And our response to the gift of this salvation is to the glory of God alone. So these, I would say, are, are, are things you must believe to be a Christian. All right? First tier issues. To be a Christian, you must believe these things. The Apostles' Creed and the Five Solas, I think, are it's pretty much Protestant Christianity, historic Orthodox Protestant Christianity. After that, you get into what I would call Tier 2 issues that begin to define the way that we have fellowship with one another. The more critical Tier 2 issues, where if you get wobbly on these, I'm going to question what you believe about Tier 1. I can't say you have to believe these things to be a Christian. 
But I can say that if you don't, if, if you're wobbly, if you're squishy in these areas, I'm going to be like, Ugh, let's talk again about tier one. The state of the wicked after judgment, does their soul go on or is it annihilated? A historical Adam and Eve, I think it's really important you believe in a historical Adam and Eve. Um, gospel and Bible-focused preaching, a missional and evangelistic focus for the church, and a biblical view of gender and sex. I think those things are, are pretty borderline. They're pretty, they're pretty close to tier one. And, and you start getting squishy there, you start to do something other than historic Orthodox Christianity. Less critical, where we can remain in, in good standing with one another, but maybe not go to church with one another, would be, are all spiritual gifts to be used in the church today? Um, baptism, what age should we baptize? What method should we baptize by? form of church government. We've been talking about that around here a little bit. Should churches be led by a group of elders, pastors, or through congregational voting? Should churches be closely aligned with a denomination, loosely aligned? Should every church be independent? Christians do not all agree on these things. Who should receive communion on, on, at a communion service? Christians do not agree on all these things. These are tier two and if we disagree about those things, like if we disagree about baptizing babies, we could probably partner together to do some work around the world. We can certainly go to conferences together and we can break bread with one another and rejoice together that we are Christians and look forward to seeing one another in the kingdom. And there we will find out who was right about infant baptism versus believer's baptism. But we're not going to go to church together on a Sunday morning because it's going to get weird when somebody who is... Uh, believing in pedo-baptism, infant baptism, suddenly says, I want to baptize this baby. And I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. And then they're going to go, but I need to do this. I'm called by God to do this. I'm going to say, well, I'm called by God to not do that. And at that point, you're going to have to break fellowship with one another. They're going to have to go to a place where uh, infant baptism or, or pedo-baptism is practiced. So these would be tier two issues. Then we have tier three issues. These define what we'll call friendly disagreements. So meaning we shouldn't stop going to church with one another over these things. Age of the earth, is it 6,000 years old, 10,000 years old? Is it billions of years old? What Bible translation should we use? Sabbath observation, is it okay for Steve to cut his grass on a Sunday? Tim may not agree with what Steve's decision is. It doesn't mean they don't need to go to church with one another. Alcohol and should it be drink in moderation or should we be teetotalers? Uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism. How often we take communion. Uh, verse by verse preaching versus topical preaching. As a preacher, I might argue it's worth leaving a church over that one, but that we can, that's a different sermon. Um, how do you dress in the service? To what degree should deacons be involved in church leadership? Should deacons include both men and women? Worship styles? The nature of heaven? What will we know in heaven? What we do in heaven? Financial giving? Are Christians commanded to give 10% or are other amounts allowable? I love my friend Kenny Daria, who's the pastor at Reformation Christian Fellowship. His answer when people ask him, are we, are, are we commanded to give 10%? He says, oh, no, dear one, you can give much more if you desire. So that's always his answer to that. You are free to give more. 
And then we would put there end times beliefs. Will believers be raptured before the tribulation? What is the actual meaning and duration of the millennial kingdom? Will Christ return before or after that kingdom is established? This would be a tier three belief, not a reason that we should stop going to church with one another. And yet it's important. It's not unimportant. Um, We should study the Bible We should try to get to a place where we come to some understanding of what we believe about the book of Revelation, particularly about Revelation 21 through 6. And once you get there, if you're really angry about it, you should start over. Like if you get to the end of your study about the return of Jesus and you are proud and angry, it's the same thing I say about Calvinism and Arminianism, if you get to the end of your study and you're proud and angry and ready to fight with everybody, you need to go back to the beginning. Because what you'll see like at the end of Romans 13 is Paul say the day day is at hand, the time is near, you know the time you live in, and then he tells them to put on the Lord Jesus and to make no provision for the flesh. So our understanding that the day is near, that should lead us to make no provision for the flesh. It should not cause us to make a ton of provision for the flesh by running around wanting to argue and debate with everyone. But it is important. We should know what we believe, be willing to discuss it, be willing to stand up for what we believe, defend what we believe. So yeah, I think this is what the text is saying. But not want to part fellowship with others over what we believe or rip or, or want others to, to, to talk in such a way where others would want to part fellowship with us, right? We want to be generous with one another when it comes to the end times. We can look at one another and say, I think I'm right and I think you're wrong. And you can look at me and say, well, I think I'm right and I think you're wrong. And we can say, okay, and I love you and I'll see you at the communion table on Sunday. And the Lord Jesus is going to return one day and we'll find out. I suppose then, who's right, who's wrong, and we won't care. We won't care. We'll care, but only in so much as we are laying down crowns at his feet. So let's go through this, and I'm going to start with uh, the, the text itself. Let me read Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. I'll keep going just for the sake of context. And when the thousand years are ended, plus I like to see the devil thrown in the lake of fire, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophet were, 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So I'm going to go through the four views tonight. I'm not going to commentate too much. I'm going to try not to commentate too much. Uh, really just want to lay them out so you can see all four views. I might talk a little bit more actually about postmillennialism because I think it's the one we're probably least familiar with. Uh, and yet it's having a little bit of a moment right now. So I figure we could talk about that some. But I'm just going to go through it. Um, Listen, if I get to your view and I don't like, like if you're a dispensationalist and I don't break down every event that takes place in Daniel's 70th week, well, I'm sorry, okay? Um, that, that's just not what we have time for tonight. This is an overview of what each uh, different camp believes. So we start with the view that uh, I certainly uh, was most familiar with as I was heading into seminary, and I would say it is the dominant view over the last... Um, particularly the last, let's say, 70 to 80 years in American evangelical life and really just in, in, in Western evangelicalism in general on this side of the world, and that is dispensational premillennialism. And so I've got these charts that I pulled off the internet to give us a little bit of a visual uh, that hopefully will help us. But the Gospel Coalition defines dispensational premillennialism as an evangelical theological system that addresses issues concerning the biblical covenants, Israel, the church, and end times. It also argues for a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecies involving ethnic-slash-national Israel and the idea that the church is a New Testament entity that is distinct from Israel. And so, a dispensational premillennialist, which I would guess that many of you are, uh, is the belief that Jesus will come back to earth after a seven-year tribulation, he will rule during a 1,000-year millennium of peace on the earth. God will give the nation of Israel the land that is described in Genesis 15:18, From the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, the full extent of the uh, kingdom of Solomon. Most dispensational premillennialists are what you would call a pre-tribulationalist, meaning they believe that the rapture is going to occur uh, when, uh, at, before the tribulation. The rapture is understood as the event when Christ removes Christians from the earth before the great tribulation begins. But there are some who are what you call mid-tribulationists. And they believe that the rapture will occur three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation. A dispensational premillennialist is going to emphasize that uh, what I just talked about there, the rapture and the second coming are two separate events. The rapture comes before the great tribulation. The second coming occurs after it. During the seven years of tribulation, there's going to be natural disasters and wars are going to occur on the earth and the people who are faithful to Jesus during that time will suffer intense persecution during the Great Tribulation, many Jewish people will turn to Jesus Christ. God's promises to Abraham and his offspring are seen by a dispensationalist as being unconditional. Therefore, like I said, the Jews will still receive that physical land described in Genesis 15, 18. And because of that, when the modern nation state of Israel was established in 1948... Dispensationalists see that as being a really key moment and a key fulfillment of end times prophecy. 
Another difference between a dispensationalist and the other three camps is that when you're reading Revelation, between Revelation 4 and 19, when it refers to Israel, they're going to say, that's Israel. Like, that's it, physical Israel, right? The nation of Israel, that's ethnic Israel. While the other three camps would say, no, that is a symbolic way of talking about the church. Scriptures uh, are, are pointed to by dispensational premillennialists. Uh, certainly, uh, First Thess- I don't have time to read them all tonight, but 1 Thessalonians 5.9 and Revelation 3.10, uh, which they would point to and say, look, God is going to remove Christians before the outpouring of his wrath during the tribulation. They'll point again to Genesis 15 and say, these promises to Abraham are unconditional. And this uh, view really emerged in the 1800s. You don't really find it before then. In the 1820s, the Plymouth Brethren were the first ones to start to teach it. The Schofield Bible, though, is hugely, hugely influential. And when the Schofield Bible took up the dispensational premillennial view as the view of that study Bible, and that study Bible became so popular, dispensationalism spread like wildfire and remains very much uh, in popularity Today, uh, again, in the, in the last 100 years, it has become the, the predominant view in Western evangelical culture. It is held to by important uh, and, and um, renowned teachers like uh, John MacArthur. Of course, a lot of you are familiar with Tim LaHaye, who wrote the Left Behind series. He also built like half of my seminary, okay? So I'm thankful for the man. Uh, when I would come out of my campus at seminary, I was looking at the Tim LaHaye ice skating rink. It literally said Tim LaHaye uh, Ice Center on the side of it because he put so much money into Liberty where I went to seminary. Uh, Hal Lindsey, very famous dispensationalist. I'd say right now, probably the most famous dispensationalist on the scene would be uh, David Jeremiah. David Jeremiah is beloved, and he is a dispensationalist. Tim LaHaye said that if you're going to be a dispensationalist, there's two keys to understanding the prophetic word of God. First, you have to interpret the Bible literally, unless the context provides good reason to, uh, to do otherwise. Second, which by the way, I, I don't disagree with him at all on that. Uh, and I, I don't know many who would be who would say they believe the Bible is inerrant, infallible, that it's not going to lead you astray. Who would disagree? <laughs> They're just all going to disagree on when does the context provide you the ability to do so. Second, he says you got to understand Israel and the church are distinct. He says that if you disagree with that, like if if you don't disagree with those two principles, you're not going to be a dispensationalist. It's, it's a fruitless conversation. Like the, if, if a dispensationalist sits down with someone and says, I want you to be a dispensationalist, and that other person says, well, I, I'm not going to interpret the Bible literally um, in, in the book of Revelation, then what Tim LaHaye is saying is that other person is going to go, oh, well, we're not getting anywhere in this conversation, so we'll just agree to disagree and leave it. Because those two things are so important uh, to dispensationalism. Um, so... Let's now look at historic premillennialism. Oh, no, 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 let's go back, let's go back. Timeline, timeline. So you see the church age, you see the cross, it's the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, when you see the cross in these different um, timelines, the cross encapsulates the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the entire first advent of Jesus Christ. Then you have the church age, okay, And then we have the rapture, 
And when the rapture happens, the righteous dead are raised and those who are alive are caught up together with Christ. Uh, You have the seven-year tribulation after the rapture, which uh, when I went through, so obviously you're figuring out, I don't think Pastor Michael's a dispensationalist. I'm not. Um, And I'm not mad about it. Um, But when I taught about the 70th week of Daniel, I taught that that is the entire church age. Just like I've been teaching tribulation is the entire church age. But a dispensationalist say no, the rapture is a literal seven-year period of time, and that is the 70th week of Daniel. At the end of the rapture, we have the second coming. Tribulation saints and Old Testament believers are raised, and then we have after that, the, uh, after the battle of Armageddon, after the destruction of the Antichrist who is reigning during the seven-year tribulation, you have the millennial reign in which Satan is bound, at the end of, of a 1,000 year, and the dispensationalists against can be literal, 1,000 years, at the end of that 1,000 years, Satan is loosed, then you have the judgment of the wicked, and then the eternal state begins. Historic premillennialists are going to agree with the idea that consummation, okay, the eternal age is going to start after the millennium, and they're going to agree that the return of Christ happens before the millennium. That's why they're called premillennialists. But historic premillennialism is the belief that Christians will stay on the earth during the seven-year tribulation. They will not be raptured away. Um, the rapture is only is a, a doctrine held to only by dispensational premillennialists. They will not be raptured away. Instead, the tribulation is going to purify the church. The second coming of Jesus will precede the millennium. And they believe what, what really you see in all the rest of these camps, what a historic premillennialist, an amillennialist, and a postmillennialist are going to believe is that the church has replaced the nation of Israel as God's covenant people, uh, or you could say that the church has been grafted in. I like that language a bit more than replace. The church has been grafted in and that now we have Gentiles as a part with the Jews and that is the New Testament church. Um, when it comes to this view, they are going to say sometimes we take Revelation symbolically, sometimes we take it literally, and there are disagreements within their own camp on when to take it literally and when to take it symbolically. But what is really important to understand is that a historic premillennialist is going to say the second coming and the rapture are not separate events. So there's not a rapture and then seven years of tribulation and then the second coming of Jesus. But that after the tribulation, there is going to be the second coming and that uh, the rapture essentially occurs then. It's the same event. God's promises of land and blessing to Abraham were not unconditional promises. They were conditional promises. And Israel's persistent disobedience violated God's covenant with them. However, God has maintained a promise, a covenant of grace through the Old Testament and the New Testament with everyone who trusts in him, Jew and Gentile. And these believers today are the church which is described by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.16 and in Romans 9.6-8 as the true Israel. 
Most references to Israel in Revelation are symbolic references to the church. Historic premillennialism truly is the earliest view of the church. We can say that. Like when you read the church fathers, the earliest church fathers, so you want to go back and read Papias, who amazingly was a disciple of John, like John who wrote Revelation, okay? So maybe some of you, I know when I say this, you're going to be like, okay, so Papias was a historic premillennialist, and he knew John, was discipled by John, who wrote Revelation. You're like, well, let's all just be historic premillennialists then. Let's sign up if Papias believed it, if Justin Martyr believed it, if the early church fathers believed it. But we've got to be careful about that. You can't just say, I'm going all in with a viewpoint because the early church fathers believed it. Because if you go and read the early church fathers, on some things they are hitting the target. The arrow is flying in. The dart is hitting the center, all right? And you're like, boom, bullseye, this is great, this is great. And then sometimes you read them and you go, they they didn't even hit the board, okay? It's like the dart hit on the wall and then fell down to the floor. They miss it because they are men who are not writing, when you read the, the early church fathers, they're not writing inspired writings from the Holy Spirit. They're, they're just, it's just like you and I writing stuff, right? And it's in the infancy of the church, and so some of them start to play with some doctrines, and what comes out on the other side is not so great. So um, you can't just subscribe to everything that the early church fathers have to say. Furthermore, if we start to do that, if we just go, well, we'll just believe whatever they believed because they were the first ones after the apostles. If we start to do that, you end, up, you end up being a little bit Roman Catholic because it's very Roman Catholic to say we're going to take Scripture and we're going to take church tradition and we're going to put them beside each other. We might even let tradition become a little bit more important than Scripture at times, right? We don't want to do that. We, we take tradition and, and we don't throw it out, right? It's important to us, but it's under the authority of Scripture. And so we got to interpret the Scripture. So if you're sitting here and you're a dispensationalist and you had a moment of panic because you're like, my view is 1,800 years newer than the, the historic premillennial view. Well, don't have a, you don't need to panic. What do the Scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? If you, were, if you were convinced that's what the scripture says, then it really doesn't matter what Papias said. Uh, some very popular historic premillennialists outside of the early church fathers uh, would be uh, Robert Gundry, who's a very popular Bible commentator. Um, George Ladd would be another popular Bible commentator. John Piper, if you followed his ministry. Uh, Jim Hamilton, who during Revelation, the one premillennial commentary I have kept close to me is Jim Hamilton. He is fantastic on the book of Revelation. The historic premill view, you can see the timeline there. We have the church age, which we are in now. There is a great apostasy. Uh, Not not all historic premillennialists believe that, but some do. Uh, Before the tribulation, during the tribulation, the Antichrist reigns. Things are rough on the earth for the church. And those who are not true believers, they're going to walk away. And then at the end of the tribulation, you have Jesus coming back. Um, most, most historic premillennialists do believe in a revival of, of Jews, like that at the end time, there's going to be a bunch of Jews who believe, um, which I also agree with. Um, the battle of Armageddon, the destruction of Antichrist, all that happens with the second coming, the righteous dead raised at the uh, at the. Uh, second coming. Then you have the millennial kingdom. So, here's the thing about historic premillennialists. 
Some of them look at Revelation and they go, it's Jewish apocalyptic literature. We need to interpret these numbers symbolically. So they look at the number seven and they go, we don't know how long the tribulation is going to be. It might be seven years or it could just be the perfect amount of time God allotted. And they'll look at the thousand-year millennial reign and they'll go, we don't know how long it's going to be. It could be a thousand years or it could just be a really long time in which God is reigning. Um, Then there are others who will say, no, it's it's a literal seven years and a literal 1,000 years. Satan is bound at the end of his binding. He is loosed, and that is when you have the battle of Gog and Magog. Basically, you have Revelation 27 through 10. Um, the wicked dead are raised, the great white throne judgment, and then the eternal age begins. These are the two premillennial views. Now we get into the weirdos. No. That's what I thought. I will say that. I don't mind saying that. When I went to seminary, I thought, I'm millennialist. What a bunch of weirdos. And I thought, post-millennialist? Who even believes that? I've never even met a post-millennialist. Um, so I get it if this sounds very odd to you tonight. I do get that because um, some people just haven't had exposure to it, haven't been around it quite as much, particularly in the Baptist church, even though there are plenty of Baptists who believe both of these things and that are in these camps. So I want to walk through uh, amillennialism with you here. Uh, amillennialism is the belief that Jesus will come again someday. There is... No literal thousand-year rule by Jesus on earth. Rather, the millennium is symbolic. It symbolizes Jesus' reign in the lives of his people from the beginning of the church until the second coming. For an amillennialist, when Jesus triumphs over Satan through the cross and the resurrection, he threw him down, Okay, restrained his power, meaning before the cross... Before Jesus comes to earth, the nations, they're in darkness. They're bound in darkness. They they don't know anything about, unless Israel comes near them or they come near Israel, they don't know anything about anything. Nothing. But you see these promises for the nations as you're reading through the Old Testament. So as we get into the New Testament, once Jesus has done his work on the cross, in the resurrection, in the ascension, he has bound Satan in the sense that Satan can no longer deceive the nations and keep them in darkness and keep them all away from hearing about Jesus. No, instead, the gospel is going to get to every single shore and multitudes from every people group will believe it and Satan can't stop it even if he desires to. He can't. He's bound from stopping it. So his binding, anomalous would say, has a very specific purpose and the purpose is that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. When Christ returns, he will immediately defeat his enemies. He will resurrect and judge the saved and the unsaved, and then the eternal age begins. The seven-year tribulation is what we're going through right now, disasters, wars, persecution. I think sometimes as Americans, we buck at that, and we go, wait a second, church isn't being persecuted. Maybe not here. But if we go to other parts of the world, they would say, we're living the tribulation right now. And if you talk to us 10 years from now, we might not talk that way. We might say, yeah, this is tribulation. Most references to Israel in Revelation are references to just the people of God on the earth, whether it's the church in the Old Testament or the church in the New. You've heard me talk a lot throughout this um, 
series about the church triumphant, the church militant on the earth, the church triumphant in heaven. The literary and historical context of Revelation are crucial for its understanding. I know you've heard me say a lot of times it's a piece of Jewish apocalyptic literature. We should handle it as such. An amillennialist is going to not see the book of Revelation as one linear timeline, but see it happening in seven cycles. Now I'm really outing myself. Uh, Seven cycles that are showing the same events from seven different perspectives. The first resurrection referred to in Revelation 4.20 is a spiritual resurrection. It is the regeneration of the heart. And you say, well, why are they reigning in heaven? Well, two reasons, I would say. One is because in Ephesians 2, Paul says that when we are saved, when God saves us in his mercy, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Now, that's our present spiritual reality. That is happening now. It's not yet, and yet it is yet, right? It's already, but not yet. We're in the millennium now, but consummation hasn't happened yet. That first resurrection in your heart, which is spiritual, cancels out the second death, which is spiritual. Satan will never, ever kill those that God has raised up spiritually in the first resurrection. The second resurrection, which is physical, cancels out the first death. And so those who have the second resurrection as their reward through faith in Christ will never stay dead, right? Their bodies will be raised, and so you can see how each resurrection, uh, or each, yeah, each resurrection is, is canceling out the death that, that Satan tries to, uh, to bring about. Prominent amillennialists include Martin Luther, John Calvin, J.I. Packer. An amillennialist will say St. Augustine, and a, post-mill- a postmillennialist will say, get your hands off of him, he's ours. And amillennials to say, you get your hands off of him. He belongs to us. And so they go back and forth about that. Um, it really became popular, though, in the time of Augustine, in the 5th century, and it has been uh, promoted ever since. It has been a, a viewpoint ever since. Let's go to postmillennialism with the rest of the time we have. Postmillennialism is the belief that the return of Christ is going to occur after the millennium. By the way, let me, let me say, amillennialism, you know, an atheist, atheist, no God, right? Amillennialism is actually kind of a misnomer because an amillennialist doesn't deny the millennium. It just says the millennium's happening now and it's symbolic. So a now millennialist would be a more accurate description of an amillennialist. A postmillennialist, just as a premillennial, a premillennialist says Jesus comes before uh, the millennium, a postmillennialist says no, Jesus comes afterward. During this time uh, that is occurring right now, uh, right now we're living in tribulation. But as the gospel spreads, the postmillennialist says, "Look." The church in Africa is in tribulation, all right? If I, if I go to Zimbabwe right now and I talk to the brothers in Zimbabwe, they're going to say, man, the Muslims are bearing down on us. Yeah, we're, we're suffering here. And what the postmillennialists will say is that as the church preaches the gospel and more of Zimbabwe is saved, that the gospel will permeate the whole nation, that even the laws will start to change, even the magistrate will repent, and you'll actually see Zimbabwe become Christian. 
And this is going to happen in America, and it's going to happen in England, and it's going to happen in Canada. It's going to happen on every nation on the face of this earth. It will become Christianized, and when that happens, Jesus will come back. Because it's like right now we're in tribulation, but as the gospel spreads, what a post-millennialist says is the tribulation dies out. And the millennial kingdom grows, right? The kingdom of Christ grows. And then once the kingdom of Christ has taken over the whole world, Jesus goes, it's mine, and I'm coming back. And so that's what they believe. And they say, we are the gospel optimist. You all think that everything's going to get worse in the world, and then Jesus is going to come back. But we say, no, the gospel will actually make everything better, and then Jesus is going to come back. The resurrection in Revelation 20 verse 4 is uh, much like an amillennialist would say. It's referring to a spiritual resurrection of Christians as they are saved. The second coming will be the final conflict of good and evil where Satan is defeated. All people are resurrected. Final judgment occurs. All this takes place after the millennium. If you're wondering about all those Bible verses where Jesus is saying that things are going to get worse in the world before they get better... Most post-millennialists will say all that stuff was about Israel in 70 AD. All that stuff that Jesus was talking about was pretty much fulfilled in 70 AD. And in order to believe that, and in order to uh, be a post-millennialist and hold that view, you kind of need to believe that most of the Bible was written before 70 AD, which I don't believe that. Uh, I think Revelation and the book of John were written later. I think John's writings were later. So that's one reason I'm not a post-millennialist. I'll tell you other reasons I'm not a post-millennialist. This view got really popular. It, it goes all the way back, some post-millennialists would say, to Augustine. You can definitely find it in the 11th century and on, very strong. And it was held by guys like Charles Spurgeon, which if you know me, you know I love me some Charles Spurgeon. Um, in the 1800s in England, like after the wars of Napoleon, things were pretty good. There really weren't a lot of wars. Like they had a time of relative peace. So post-millennialism got really popular in the Western world because when there's not wars, you're like, hey, look at the gospel. You get things like the Salvation Army are starting, right? Slavery's being abolished. And so like the whole world is kind of looking at each other going, look at the gospel. Look what's happening here. I think Jesus is going to come back soon. And so this idea that the, the gospel is, is taking over the whole world, the whole world seemed like it was becoming Christian. And so there were a lot of post-millennialists in the 1800s. And then what happened? What happened in, in the 1900s? Two world wars. <laughs> I, I, I really believe if Charles Spurgeon was alive in 1955, he would not have been a post-millennialist. I think that it was a viewpoint that made a lot of sense, a lot of sense when things were going pretty well in the Western world, but once they stopped going well, people let go of it. However, it is seeing a comeback right now because it's held by many Christian nationalists. Now, just let me, let me say to you, a Christian nationalist is, is not defined by CNN. CNN thinks anybody who just says... You should believe in Jesus. You ought to turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. We don't think there should be abortion in this country because we think it's evil and we have a biblical view of sexual morality. They're like, Christian nationalist, (laughs) right? That's what they do. And that's not true. It's not true. Christian nationalism is like, it's a real thing within Christendom. And um, what Christian nationalists believe is that we need to Christianize America 
and we Christianize America by taking over cities, governments, states, ultimately the nation, tell the, the president to repent, and once America becomes Christian, then it's the type of nation Jesus will return to. Okay, it, it very much is, and, and by the way, what law are you going to use in that nation? God's law in the Old Testament. So let's put the rapist to death. <laughs> like, those are the sorts of conversations Christian national, real Christian nationalists are, hap- are having, as opposed to just those that are called Christian nationalists. And all, you don't have to be, if you're a post-millennialist, you're not necessarily going to be a Christian nationalist. But if you're a Christian nationalist, you have to be a post-millennialist. Because it's all about this belief that we're going to Christianize the world. My problem with it is two things. One, I do think that the Bible tells us things are going to get worse before they get better. And number two, um, my problem with it is that Jesus speaks of his second coming suddenly, not gradually. And in order for postmillennialism to be true, there has to be this kind of gradual taking over that happens throughout the world. But Jesus doesn't speak of it gradually. He talks about he's going to come as a thief in the night. There's going to be people working out in the field together, right? They're going to be grinding together, and one will be saved and one will not. And it's going to be sudden. He's going to come suddenly. And so that is the reason that, um, and, and it's unexpected, like in the days of Noah. So that's why I, I think if the whole world's Christian, they're all going to expect it. <laughs> so I struggle with postmillennialism on that level, but I will tell you what I'm attracted to with postmillennialism, and that is the idea of Christian optimism. And I think that we need a little bit more of that. I think that's what we can learn from our postmillennial brothers and sisters, is to believe the gospel is not just going to save like two people from each people group, right? Don't you think that sometimes? You're like, all right, well, the gospel saved a, a bushel of people here in America, but like once it gets to these places that are far off, or these people that don't even have the Bible in their language yet, it's probably going to save like two or three, and then Jesus will return. That's not what I believe. Like, I believe Jesus will save a multitude from every people group. And so I think that, that that sort of optimism, the optimism that the gospel is powerful and it has the ability to not just transform lives but societies, we need to recover that and hold on to that and stand on that and operate in it. But I, I don't think that um, I can buy in on, on everything else that they're offering. But the last thing I'll say tonight is that I think wherever you land, I think there's an aspect of each view that you can appreciate on some level right? Like I look at my dispensational brothers and sisters, and even though I may disagree, I'm like, man, they take Bible prophecy seriously, and they are convicted about the nation of, of Israel uh, and these, these promises being unconditional, and they have such a good grip on the Old Testament, particularly the book of Daniel. So like I have a real appreciation for my dispensational brothers and sisters in that way. Historic premillennialists, I love the, the, exactly what it says, right? That it's historic, that it's classic, that it's tied to the early church. I appreciate that about them. I appreciate what I just said about postmillennialism. I think someone who's not an amillennialist can at least appreciate the simplicity of it, the desire to be textually faithful to uh, whatever genre that you're reading within the literary, historical, grammatical context. So I think there's something we can appreciate from each camp while still going, but I do think I'm right, right? Because at the end of the day, what, is, what good is it to have a conviction where you go, well, I have this conviction, but, eh, you know, I don't know if, I don't really believe it. Um, I, I, I think we cannot be dogmatic. I think I could say, I, th- I, I think amillennialism is true. It's my best understanding. Could be wrong. We can be generous in that way. 
But I, at the end of the day, I think it's good to study the Bible and to plant your flag and to say, this is what I believe. This is what I believe. But kick the tires on it regularly to make sure that it's what the Bible actually says. Let's pray. And then, uh, Pastor Ben, if you could come back up and lead us in our final doxology. Father, a lot of information tonight. I know that in some ways, you probably feel like we drank from the fire hose a little bit, but that's why we have these handouts we can take home. I pray, Father, for the return of your son, Jesus. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Will you come, Jesus, after a seven-year tribulation? After seven-year reign of an antichrist? Will you come, Lord Jesus, after seven years where the church is on the earth? Would you come, Lord Jesus, after a symbolic millennium where Satan is bound from deceiving those whose names are written in the book of life and the nations? Will you come, Lord Jesus, after the whole world has been Christianized? We all have our different opinions according to your revelation of what's going to happen. And for some of us, the jury still may be out. We might still be studying and informing that opinion. But you're going to come. That we know. You are going to come. And maybe when that day comes, there will be one camp who won't be so worried with I told you so's because they're being caught up to glory. But maybe there will be one camp that's right and three that are wrong. But we know that we will all be on the right side if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that every enemy will be slain and that all evil that plagues us and just is unrelentless. It's going to be gone. It's going to be decimated, destroyed. And justice and peace will reign on the earth forever. And we look forward to that all together. All the people of God. We look forward to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.